Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 14 through 30. At this point in the text, we have moved on from the celebrations of what we call Palm Sunday to a bit later in Jesus' last week. Here now, the reading of God's word. Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I betray him to you? They paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he took his place with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they became greatly distressed and began to say to him, one after another, Surely not I, Lord. He answered, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. He replied, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again Drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the fall of 1918, another pandemic was moving across the globe and the illness it caused became known as the Spanish flu. This picture you see is actually a clipping from an article that appeared in the Richmond Times-Dispatch on February 13th, 1919. Because of the name, Spanish flu, I always assumed this illness started in and then spread from Spain, but this wasn't the case. The origin of this name is much more interesting. The countries that comprise the Allied and Central Powers during World War I had agreed to a media blackout of any negative stories that might adversely affect morale. So they chose not to report the flu. During the First World War, however, Spain stayed neutral and so was not subject to the blackout. 
which is why Spanish papers were the first to report news of the influenza outbreak, leading most people to believe it originated in Spain. Yet to this day, scientists are still unsure where the outbreak started. There are arguments to be made that it started in France, in China, Great Britain, even the United States. Despite the lack of certainty, though, the name the Spanish flu persists. When we come up against something we cannot easily explain, especially something that makes us anxious or angry or fearful, it seems we are hardwired to look for someone to blame. We see this tendency play out in all kinds of ways on a large and small scale. Workers blame management, management blames organizers, the 99% blames the 1% and vice versa. Politicians blame their colleagues across the aisle. And I don't know if it's true in your house these days, but it is definitely true in mine. With our family all under one roof together all the time and frustration and boredom both running high, we quickly blame one another for being too loud or too annoying, for talking too much or for not talking enough. We blame others because it gives us a sense of control, but also because if we can find someone or something to blame, we don't have to look at how we might be contributing to the problem. Apparently, the earliest Christians were not exempt from this tendency to blame. And in the disciple named Judas, they found the perfect scapegoat. If we read through the gospel accounts, each of them makes some reference to Judas as the ultimate betrayer. In the story from Matthew's gospel that we heard today, we hear about the last night of Jesus' life. All the noise from the crowds who so enthusiastically welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem has died down now. And Jesus is alone with his 12 disciples celebrating Passover. As they share this special meal together, Jesus tells them, one of you will betray me. The disciples are shocked, saying, it's not me, is it? It can't be me. To which Jesus responds, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me has betrayed me. Jesus is probably making a reference to a bowl of water in which they washed their fingers or maybe a bowl with some kind of sauce in it. But either way, with these words, Jesus seems to be implicating not just Judas, but all the disciples in the sin of betrayal. Although we most readily associate today, this Palm Sunday, with palm fronds and adoring crowds, the fact is Palm Sunday is the day betrayal enters the gospel story. 
It doesn't start that way, of course. It starts with a parade. As Jesus enters the holy city, crowds of people line the streets. They throw their cloaks down on his path and wave palm branches, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When we hear the word Hosanna in this context, we probably think it means something like, hooray for Jesus. But what Hosanna actually means is save us. The crowds probably only have the faintest idea who Jesus is and what he really stands for. But what they know for sure is that they are desperate for a savior, someone to liberate them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. And from what they've heard, Jesus might just be that someone. But by the end of the week, Many of the people who make up this adoring crowd will be the same people calling for Jesus to be crucified. Not so much because they think he deserved to die, but because they feel betrayed by him. They wanted a savior to join them in fighting a common enemy, the one they believe is to blame for all their problems. Instead, they get a man who refuses to take sides or take up arms. They get a savior who relies only on the power of love and compassion. Palm Sunday is a story of betrayal. The betrayal of the crowds who praise Jesus one day and crucify him days later. The betrayal of Jesus who doesn't behave the way people wanted or expected God's Messiah to. The betrayal of the disciples who even though they know more about Jesus than anyone else and have the best chance of understanding who he really is will all turn away from him by the time the story ends. Even Peter the one nicknamed the rock on which the church will be built, will flat out deny three times having ever known Jesus at all. Yes, Judas is the one who tips off the authorities and takes payment for it, but he is by no means the only disciple to let Jesus down. The story will unfold just as Jesus said. The one who dipped his hand in the bowl with me, will betray me. We who join in the Palm Sunday parade, shouting, Hosanna, save us. We who long to join Jesus at the table. We who have expectations we want Jesus to meet. We who dip our hands into the bowl with his. We also betray and we also suffer betrayal. This may be especially true during this strange season of a pandemic we are all struggling to navigate. When we are prone to anger at the neighbor who doesn't adhere to the social distancing rules or at the politician who goes too far or not far enough. When we are anxious about how this is going to impact our jobs, our portfolios, our summer plans. 
When we are fearful of illness and death and focus on what we can do to save ourselves and those we love. When our faith in God is tested and doubt creeps in. And yet we find ourselves here at the beginning of this holy week with a story that reminds us that as much as we long to find someone or something to blame, we are and always have been in this together. Which is perhaps why this story of betrayal ends with this unlikely account of the very first communion, a meal that symbolizes how what is broken apart becomes the very thing that holds us together, even when everything else seems to be dividing us up. Jose Andres is a celebrity chef who owns more than 30 restaurants in eight states, as well as D.C. and the Bahamas. But what Jose is becoming best known for is feeding people in crisis. Through his charity, World Central Kitchen, he goes right to the scene of the latest disaster and creates field kitchens that give people fresh, nourishing meals as they struggle to cope with the aftermath of the hurricane or earthquake or tornado or flood or, most recently, if they are quarantined on a cruise ship in the port of Oakland because of the coronavirus. World Central Kitchen has launched feeding missions in 13 countries, serving 15 million meals and bringing together 45,000 volunteers. For this work of bringing people together with food, Jose was nominated for the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize. A reporter who shadowed him for a recent profile observed that in a matter of weeks, he witnessed a woman in the Bahamas call to Jose from her car and simply put her hands together as if she were in church. It was her way of telling him he's a blessing. On his way to his office in D.C. in February, a woman from Japan stopped to thank him for feeding the cruise ship passengers docked and quarantined in Yokohama. As he walked through downtown San Francisco, puffing on a cigar, a woman approached him to tell him that she's donated to World Central Kitchen and that it was an honor to meet him. When Jesus, on the last night of his life, offers his disoriented, fearful disciples the gift of communion, he is making a covenant with them and with us, a promise that no matter what divides us, no matter what betrayals we face, we are united by this meal, by the sharing of bread and cup, by this meal given to the disciples at the very moment that their communion is beginning to break apart. After this meal, as they go into the night of Jesus' arrest and the trial that will end in his crucifixion, the disciples have the memory of this meal to remind them that no matter how scattered 
and fractured they will become, there is something that will always hold them together. The promise that everything that happens, Jesus suffering on the cross, his body broken, blood shed, and the betrayal at the root of it, all of that is no match for the mercy and compassion and overwhelming love of God offered in the form of bread and cup to each one of them who dipped his hand in the bowl with Jesus, to each one who in his own way would betray him. I know in this time of uncertainty and fear, it might be tempting to turn away from this story that can seem outdated and unclear and irrelevant. But what might happen if instead we decide to stay with it, to stay with Jesus at this table, to look around at the other faces, some of whom we may think have betrayed us, and to decide not to point fingers and cast blame, but instead to accept that, yes, we are all in this together. What if we commit to staying with Jesus throughout this week, trusting that even our fractious band of human followers across the globe, separated by ideology and nationality, socioeconomic status, and now social distancing, that we can be brought together through this holy meal, the bread which is Christ's body broken for us, the cup, which is Christ's blood shed for us, this meal that teaches us what matters most of all. We are not alone, even when we are apart, separated by time and space and borders and beliefs and distancing. We are in this together. Amen.